Well, let's say that you're helping out with the Mannheim Project and working with a small team on a house north of the square of Mannheim. And you're all excitedly uh, getting started the first morning, but one of your crew isn't there yet, me. And all of a sudden, you notice a police car with its lights on, slowly moving north from the square. And you think to yourself, hmm, I I wonder what this is. And behind the police car is the Mannheim Central Marching Band, playing We Are the Champions by Queen. And following the band, you see a shiny black 2020 Corvette Stingray Coupe convertible with the top down. And people are coming out of their houses, and they're lining the streets, and there I am perched on the back of the vet, waving to the onlookers like a homecoming queen or a politician. And I roll up to the job site, and you notice that airbrushed on the side of the vet is do good. And I get out of the car smiling and waving to the WGAL cameras, who seem to appear out of thin air. I did ask them to come. And I give a short little interview with you and the others way back, of course, explaining how pastors need to be better in touch with their communities and and need to, to do more. And so when WGAL leaves, I mention that I have to go pick a few things up, and I leave, and then I don't come back. Now, would you say in that scenario that my heart was in the right place? Or imagine this, during the offering time at Jerusalem Church, someone from the congregation, not not naming names, stands on the pew and shouts out, I'm giving $10,000, and they're waving a stack of money in the air. You'd think that was a bit showy, right? Hopefully. My brother actually went to a church one time where people were actually shouting out how much they were going to give to a certain mission project. So that's not far-fetched for some churches. There's something nauseating about someone drawing attention to the good that they do. Uh, Humility and discretion are scarce in our narcissistic social media culture where people love to flaunt the best of themselves to draw attention to themselves. As Christians, it's sometimes hard to discern whether we help people out of true thankfulness for God's grace and love for our neighbor or out of self-interest and self-promotion and boosting of our reputation and image. Saints, we oftentimes have mixed motives, some sanctified, some selfish. There are only two ways to live, living to please God and living to please yourself. Now, you could say living to please others, but that's just living to please yourself veiled. As beloved and adopted children of God, our desire and our aspiration is to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light, to to let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. We live for the acclamation and glory of God, precisely because God adopted us into his family. So, let's begin with identity. Number one, understanding your true identity. When I was younger, people would call the house and I'd pick up the phone and say, hello, shirks, and sometimes they'd respond, Henrietta. That does not boost a prepubescent boy's self-esteem, I can assure you of that. 
Anyway, Jesus knew to whom he was talking. He was right to tell his disciples, your father. He, he did it at least nine times in the Sermon on the Mount. He was teaching God's beloved adopted children, remind them along the way who they belonged to and how they were to act as a result. The Sermon on the Mount is built upon the foundation of God's adopting grace. The Sermon on the Mount, including verses one through four, are not general moral principles for good people to follow. In fact, no one has the natural ability to do any of it. Jesus was describing what spirit-filled kingdom living looks like for God's children. So, who are you really? God's adopted child or just an acquaintance? Your true identity greatly affects how you approach verses one through four and really morality in general. Brothers and sisters, understanding our true identity in Christ will greatly help us apply verses one through four. But we need to, we need to understand more. Two, understanding God's gracious reward for good works. Now this is a lengthy point because it's an important point. So get this point right, and verses one through four will, will just come alive. At the end of verse four, Jesus says, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. He says the same thing in verses six and 18 regarding prayer and fasting. And, and reward becomes a dangerous word when misunderstood and misapplied. Some may hear reward and think that they can earn something from God as if God is obligated to pay them back for the good that they do. So let me clarify a few things. First, it is important to remember, brothers and sisters, that God has graciously credited Christ's righteousness to us through faith. We are accepted and loved by God, not because of the worthiness or quality or even the act of our faith or because we earn or deserve anything from God, but only because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to us through faith as a gift. In fact, to say that we have been justified by faith is to say that we have been justified by the object of our faith, which is Christ alone. Precisely speaking, Christ justifies, not our act of believing. Ursinus rightly said, quote, the act which belongs properly to faith is to apprehend and apply to itself the righteousness of Christ, end of quote. In other words, by God's sovereign grace and spirit, we come to understand that we have received from God the righteousness of Christ, and in receiving, we are counted as righteous. It's 100% unmerited grace. Second, Heidelberg 62 asks, but why can our good works not be our righteousness before God? or at least part of it. And it answers like this, because the righteousness which can stand before God's judgment must be absolutely perfect. 
and in complete agreement with the law of God, whereas even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. God has only ever accepted and loved one man on the basis of his absolutely perfect heart and works, Jesus Christ, his perfect son. Only Christ is justified by works. Your works have never been absolutely perfect and in complete agreement with the law of God because though you have been delivered from sin in Christ, brothers and sisters, you have yet to be finally and completely delivered from sin. That day is coming. So then, please listen carefully, God doesn't accept and love you on the basis of your good works. And he is not pleased with your legitimately good works on the basis of their purity and worthiness. God accepts and loves you on the basis of Christ's perfect, perfect works. And God is pleased with your legitimately good works because you do them in union with Christ who works them in you. Do you understand? That's essential for you to understand or you will take the word reward and run right into legalism or right into the health, wealth, and prosperity heresy. God owes you and me absolutely nothing. God is not in debt to you or me. All that, that you and I receive from God is grace upon grace upon grace because Christ has merited it for you and for me. What you do for God then, those good works, those practicing of righteousness, it is not the cause of God's love for you, but the fruit and the assurance of God's love for you. So then, we might ask with Heidelberg 63, but do our good works earn nothing? Even though God promises to reward them in this life and the next, and there's that word reward what do we make of that? We, we have to be very careful. We need to understand that rightly. Here's how the Heidelberg answers. Please think carefully now. This reward is not earned. It is a gift of grace. This reward is not earned. It is a gift of grace. Not merit, grace. Not payday, grace. Not deserved, Grace. When you hear the word reward, think God's sovereign and unmerited grace or gift. God freely and without obligation graciously rewards our good works. First, because he has worked them in us to the praise of his glorious grace. And that's Philippians 1.6 and 2.13. And second, because he is kind, generous, gracious, and good. Okay, Heidelberg 86 asks this then, since we have been delivered from our misery by grace alone through Christ, without any merit of our own, why must we yet do good works? So if we're not saved by good works, saved by striving and trying hard, why do good works at all? And the answer that Heidelberg 86 gives is also the answer for how we are going to do, to live out, verses 1 through 4, for the glory of our Heavenly Father. Here's the answer. Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, 
also renews us by his Holy Spirit to be his image so that with our whole life we may show ourselves thankful to God for his benefits and he may be praised by us. Further, that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by its fruits and that by our godly walk of life we may win our neighbors for Christ. Do you understand those incredible reasons for doing good works? Here they are again. Number one, we do good works because we have been redeemed. And Christ is conforming us to his glorious image. Number two, we do good works because we, are, we, we genuinely desire to express our thankfulness to God. Three, we do good works because we genuinely want to praise God. Four, we do good works because our good works assure us that we have true and saving faith. And five, we do good works so that by our godliness we can win our neighbors for Christ. Now you'll notice, vanity, self-importance, ego, reputation, and self-image are not among the reasons we do good works. Neither is earning God's approval and love. That we already have in the person of Christ. Last thing before delving into verses one through four. What are good works? And this is important because in verse 1, Jesus used the phrase, practicing your righteousness, which I take to mean doing good works. Doing good works. What are good works? And, And here's the biblical answer the Heidelberg gives. Only those which are done out of true faith in accordance with the law of God and to his glory and not those based on our own opinion or on precepts of men. Now, the Apostle Paul told the Romans, for whatever, pick something, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Good works do not exist apart from faith in and union with Christ. They don't exist. And I'll review the three things in case you missed them. Number one, good works are done only out of true faith. Two, good works are done only in accordance with God's law. And three, good works are done only for God's glory and not for your own glory. Okay, remember those. Uh, They will help you with verses one through four. When it comes to almsgiving or giving to the needy, which God desires us to do, brothers and sisters, For it to actually be a good work, it must be done out of true faith in accordance with God's law and for God's glory and not for our own glory. I think that's what practicing our righteousness means. All that is introduction. Jesus began this section of his sermon with a warning for his disciples, number three, a warning about good works. A warning about good works. Jesus said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. The general warning, that's a general warning, it applies to the three specific things that Jesus addresses directly after verse 1. Giving alms, verses 2 through 4. Prayer, verses 5 through 15, and fasting, verses uh, 16 through 18. And and I think Jesus' warning here applies to every good work, not just giving prayer and fasting. So with verse 1 in mind, 
You may remember back, if you're really paying attention, you might remember back to chapter 5, verse 16, where Jesus plainly said this, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Is Jesus contradicting himself? One place he says to do good works so people see, and in another place he warns against doing good works for people to see. Now what's up? Well, you have to think carefully. Here's what's happening. There's a common denominator in chapter 5, verse 16, and chapter 6, verse 1 that clears things up, I think. The common denominator is to whom acclamation and glory go and the motivation of the heart. Listen to chapter 5, verse 16 again. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. To whom does the glory go? To God, not you. When, when you live the Christian life, you live it publicly. There, there's no way not to do that. You, you, it's a public thing. I'm following Christ. I'm living out his commands in every area of my life. You can't hide certain things. It's just going to be out there. But the glory goes to God. Why? Because God is the one graciously working good works in us. So our motivation for good works is the acclamation and the glory of God. Now listen to verse 1 again. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to. And that's a prepositional phrase that shows purpose. In order to be seen by them. To, to whom does the glory go in that scenario? Well, if someone does a good deed in order to be noticed and then subsequently admired, they are seeking to seize the glory for themselves. Hence Christ's warning. Because I think for the whole world, self-glorification is a natural tendency. To seize acclamation and glory for self is to ignore sovereign grace and to express the grossest ingratitude. In verses 1 through 4, Jesus is advocating that our motivation must not be the admiration and accolades of others who, who see us, but simply the pleasure and the blessing of God our Father. Chapter 5, verse 16, and chapter 6, verse 1 are really two sides of the same coin as I see it and are entirely consistent and helpful. Uh, both promote God's glory. Both promote doing things for God's pleasure and blessings and not for self-promotion. Human applause is largely worthless to people who long to please God and to receive his gracious reward. Humility, discreetness, and stealth are virtues for those who truly love God and their neighbor. The, the danger of self-importance, brothers and sisters, it's always there. Always. But... As we rest in Christ and serve and love others, expecting our Father's gracious reward, we will simply not care much for applause. And instead, we'll serve humbly and discreetly and stealthily for the pleasure of our Father. If we put verse 1 in the positive, it would sound something like this. Beloved disciples, 
When you do good works, do them humbly, selflessly, discreetly, and stealthily for the acclamation and glory of your gracious heavenly Father and think only of his pleasure for then you have his gracious and better reward. Isn't that Jesus' point? We need to listen to Jesus. Otherwise, we'll come away empty-handed. We don't want that. The verb is present tense here. We have no reward from our Father when our motive is self-promotion. There's no reward in that. Now, I'm sensitive to this. If our motives are always mixed, saints, some sanctified, some, some selfish, will we ever do anything good that pleases our Father? Does he just reject us? And here's where we need to be clear about the gospel. We need to hear the gospel over and over and over again. God is pleased with us because of the merits of Christ to whom we belong. And and Philippians 2.13, it's actually true for you and me who belong to Christ, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for what? For his good pleasure. Brothers and sisters, our Father is graciously ridding us of self-importance and self-promotion. And at the very same time, He is working kindness and generosity in our hearts. God is doing the work in us so that we can make progress in doing good works. He's right there producing them in us kindly. And this realization, this gospel realization to know where good works come from out of our justification and being counted righteous in God, this, this realization intensifies our thankfulness. Because as we do good works out of love for God and others, we are being assured that God is at work in us and that he is producing what he has promised which brings tremendous comfort for the soul, assurance for the soul. Have you ever considered that radical acts of generosity fuel your gratitude for God and comfort your soul in the grace that you're actively receiving or actually receiving, rather? There is no comfort in greed. There is no comfort in stinginess. There is no comfort when our ears are closed to the cries of the poor. It's it's really a matter, brothers and sisters, of what's better, what we want more. Is it better to receive a few pats on the back from the world, from our fellow man, than to receive the gracious and extravagant rewards of our Heavenly Father? Which is better? Which do we want more? Our Father's heavenly reward far exceeds all earthly rewards. As you consider this, a quick illustration, think about athletes who win championships only to have their fathers ignore them and highlight all the things that they did wrong in the game. When everyone is cheering, maybe even chanting their name and celebrating their accomplishments, they'd trade it all to just have their father's approval. 
My point is, we have our Father's approval in Christ as much as we're ever going to have it. We have all of it. His approval, what greater reward is there than that? What are we trying for? But to please the one who's already fully in love with us and pleased with us because of the merits of his son. We need to think this stuff through. Jesus' warning is helpful. We, we should hear this. It, it makes us think about why we do what we do. To get down in there. Now verse two. Number four. How not to give and why. How not to give and why. Jesus moves from his general warning in verse one to the specifics of giving alms in verses two through four. You might have seen the animated Disney classic Robin Hood uh, with the fox, the, the animated one, and, and you might remember that Robin Hood the fox, dressed as a blind beggar, comes before the sheriff of Nottingham saying, alms, alms for the poor. Have you, have you seen this? Uh, he's wearing glasses. You're like, no, don't have any idea. Okay. Well, to give alms is really to, to give freely, to give money or food or perhaps clothing, something, giving something to ease the burden of the poor. We often call this charity, almsgiving. Jesus said, thus when you give to the needy, almsgiving, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. The proud and haughty person sadly settles for the lesser reward. Notice Jesus' assumption here. His disciples are giving to the poor. When you give to the needy. When. It's happening. And when that almsgiving is done, it should not be showy. It should not be flashy. It should not be ostentatious. How silly it would be if every time we gave to the poor, we just, that would just be so dumb. We'd all be like, what's wrong with that guy? Jesus said, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. Now, Jesus seems to be using metaphor here. Uh, there is no historical record of anyone giving to the poor and blasting out a trumpet before they're, they're giving to the poor. His point is, don't flaunt your giving in a pompous and showy way. Don't do it that way. And I think here there's a veiled reference to the Pharisees. Uh, he, he blasted them for stuff like this, but I think Jesus addresses all hypocrites who give for selfish reasons. One source said, quote, in the New Testament, the hypocrite is one who claims to have a relationship with God and to love righteousness, but is self-seeking, self-reliant, and even self-deceived, end of quote. You see, the, the synagogues and the streets were public places. To blast a trumpet would draw a big scene. It would draw attention to the, the act of almsgiving. And hypocrites, they always seem to find a way to draw attention to what they're doing. Notice why hypocrites sound the trumpet, figuratively speaking, that they may be praised by others. You'll see the same type of thing in Matthew 23. Hypocrites draw attention to their good works so that they are esteemed, they are admired. And that's not a good work. That doesn't count for anything. 
First, it's not done in true faith. Second, though it outwardly conforms to God's law, giving, inwardly it doesn't. Because the heart is seeking self-glorification. There's nothing in that. That's empty. Third, it's not done for God's glory. Hypocrites give. Sometimes they give a lot. But their motive is the love of self, not the love of God. The trumpet blast. It may be when a person gives, how a person gives, where a person gives. In our day, many people live for pictures and video Footage, cameras, cell phones, and social media are sounding trumpets. Capture me. Put me on social media and admire me. Hey, hopefully I go viral. And then the world can admire how great I am and what I'm doing. The the person who thinks that way thinks little of God's pleasure and gracious reward because they're too busy thinking of themselves. Now, hear me loud and clear, sensitive hearts here, loud and clear. There is nothing inherently wrong with social media. And it can be used, and actually it's used a lot, oftentimes, for the glory of God and the good of others. Yet we live in an exhibitionist society where people crave the cheers of others. Oh, if I can just get 100 likes on my quote from my sermon. Is this fresh for some of us? It's exhibitionist. We've seen the celebrities on their humanitarian crusades. We've heard of concerts performed to raise money for global aid. We've seen sports stars in their foundation and rich people with buildings named after them because of their sizable donations. Are these publicity stunts or are these good works? Is their giving motivated by true faith in gratitude for God's grace or increased sales, improved public perception, or even intensified feelings of self-worth? Perhaps part of the answer to that is the fact that Jesus Christ is nowhere to be found in many charities receiving millions and millions of dollars from people. Brothers and sisters, this is also a danger for us. We need to be careful as believers, even very careful as a church, not to blow trumpets. If our Father sees, it is enough for us. He will bless us. We don't need to draw attention to ourselves. Jesus said about hypocritical almsgivers, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward, as in they've gotten all that they're going to get. Well, that's not good. We... We want our Father's gracious reward. Again, no earthly accolades compare with the gracious reward of our God. Isn't it exhilarating knowing that our Father is pleased with us? Isn't it comforting to know that though we may not be master painters like our older brother, our Father is still pleased with our messy crayon drawings because we present them to him with great love in solidarity with our perfect older brother. Number five, how to give and why. 
Brothers and sisters, verse 2 tells us how not to give and why, and verse three, verses 3 and 4 tell us how to give and why. But when you give to the needy, again, it's assumed that Jesus' disciples are actually giving to the needy and the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, kids, kids, I have a question for you. Is it possible, kids for your right hand to do something that your left hand has no idea about. That sounds kind of silly, right? What is he saying? Why is he doing this right hand, left hand thing? What, that, you know. Well, kids, sometimes, as you know, people say silly things, seemingly silly things, I should say, to make a point. To, to, to grab you in, to, to pull you in. And so, for example, a few of you kids I know love to play basketball. I love basketball, so I'm with you on that. And so if you ask me who is the leading scorer in the NBA, I might say something like this, James Harden from the Houston Rockets. He's averaging like a million points. And, and see, you would, be, you would know intuitively, okay, he's not averaging a million points, but what I'm actually saying there is he's scoring a lot. He's, scoring, he's dropping 30, over 36 points per game. He's blowing the field out. He's a, an amazing scorer. And you'd understand like a million points as just being a way that he's scoring a ton of points. Jesus didn't have his neuroscience mixed up. He meant that when we give, we are not even to think much of it ourselves. We are not to applaud ourselves, think highly of ourselves, or congratulate ourselves for displaying such radical kindness in our giving. I like how Dr. Doriani said it, quote, when we help someone, we have some awareness of our acts, but true righteousness has no vanity, no calculation, no self-congratulation, no egotism, end of quote, of quote. Jesus said, so that your giving may be in secret. In secret. He, he was using the left hand, right hand metaphor to say that when his disciples give to the poor, they should give humbly and selflessly and stealthily as to not draw attention to themselves or to congratulate themselves. That's what he's getting at. In other words, don't be flashy, be modest. Be modest, and here's why. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Our motivation for generosity must be that our father sees us and he will reward us. Oh, it's coming. My father sees. My father is proud only by the merits of Christ. My father is pleased with me only because I'm in union with his Christ, uh, with his son. We live for the eyes and pleasure of our Father. The end of verse four is key, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, why is that key? Why draw attention to that phrase? Because Jesus repeats it in verses six and 18. It's what he's getting after. He was repeating for emphasis, live for the gracious reward of your heavenly Father. My children, the ones who have received my grace, citizens of the kingdom who belong to me, I want you to, like me, live for the gracious reward of your Father who loves you. That's what he's getting at. Now, I think it's best to end with this. God sent his one and only begotten Son to earth to accomplish salvation, which included keeping the law perfectly. 
when Jesus lived here on earth, did he care about the applause and the accolades of the world? Is that what he was after? Please, I have come for you to receive me well, to applaud me, to, to throw parties in my honor. Is that why he came? No, he cared about one thing, doing the work his father sent him to do to please the father and to rescue his bride, the church. People ignored him, rejected him, mocked him, blasphemed him, tried to stone him, discriminated against him. And when the cross loomed, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. That's what they thought of him. Their cheers were not because they liked him. It was because they hated him. They wanted him dead. Yet the ghastly cries of the mob didn't distract our Lord Jesus from his father's will. Jesus didn't live to appease the crowd. He didn't live for the applause. Why? Simple. He loved his father perfectly. And he knew the father's reward awaiting him, a people for his own possession. Jesus endured the fury of hell for one reason, the acclamation and glory and pleasure of his father and the great reward awaiting him. Nothing else compared, nothing else mattered. He was driven by the pleasure of God. J.C. Ryle said, a giving savior should have giving disciples. A giving savior should have giving disciples. Why did Jesus give everything? Because he is kind, he is generous, inside and out. Jesus endured the horrors of hell to be generous, to satisfy the justice of God for us because he is entirely kind and loving and generous. It is Jesus who rescued you and me, brothers and sisters, from sin and hell and death, and it is Jesus who is working in you and me, the heart of generosity that is in him. He's currently working it in us. The point of this sermon is not so much give more to the poor. What's wrong with you stingy people? That's not the message. Do more good works. Why are you so lazy? That's not the message. You may need to do that. You may be lazy and stingy. That's not the point of the message. If, if we left focusing on external behavior only, we have not heard Jesus rightly. The point of this sermon is to rest in Christ. Receive him. Look to him. When we look to him in utter need and dependency and expectation, he graciously produces in us this generosity that will unavoidably spill over into the lives of others. A heart content with the Father's pleasure is a generous heart which leads to active hands. Now, you can try more, you can try to give more and do more good works, but that just sounds exhausting. You could try really hard to earn more of God's approval, acceptance, and love. Maybe if I go the extra mile, then maybe finally I can find some rest that he's accepted me, that he loves me, that I've done enough for him. But that's not good news, nor what the Father desires, nor what the Father is after. 
It is when our hearts are transformed by Christ, when we look to him in his beautiful and selfless giving to us that we are caught up in adoration of our Savior and our Lord and our divine giver that we want to, we can't help but to give to others like him. That's different. That's very different. Jesus graciously works generosity in his brothers and sisters. It's you and me. Because they are his and he loves them. It's a generosity that is motivated not by self-promotion, not even by guilt, but by God for his acclamation and glory and gracious reward. We, we would do well to consider the challenge of J.C. Ryle who wrote, where are our hearts? Are we doing all, whether we give or pray, as to the Lord and not to men? Do we realize the eye of God? Do we simply and solely desire to please him who sees in secret and by whom actions are weighed? Are we sincere? These are the sort of questions with which we should daily ply our souls. Daily plying our souls. What's in there? Oh, God help me. Do you want the applause of the world or the sweet smile and gracious reward of your heavenly Father? What do you want? What do you have? Well, I often do crave the applause of the world, the applause of you. Maybe I'm a good pastor if they just say it enough. Maybe I'm actually doing God's work if our church grows numerically. These are deep temptations. And if you feel that temptation, that tension inside of you, confess it to your Father who loves you. Confess it. Tell Him that, that your motives are all mixed up and you want to get it right and, and, and He'll help you. Ask Him to change your heart, to change your motivations, which only He can do. Ask Him to motivate you unto His glory and praise. And, and then, brothers and sisters, believe in your heart that, that because God wants this for you, because it's His will for you, it's because He's conforming you to the image of Christ and it will be done so we know what He wants to do in our lives. This is His will. Believe that in your heart. Heart. Believe that he wants this for you as his child and believe that he is producing it in you as his child. It's happening, that, that work. Jesus has removed the burden of the law from us so that we could be free to live like him. He is most generous, most kind, most loving, most giving. So look to him, rest in him. Receive him, receive his warm and gentle grace, which is making your heart like his to live for the gracious reward of your heavenly 